You're going to be thinking about that this afternoon. Hopefully you'll realize that indeed the apathy on the part of so many Christians is what keeps our world from being moved toward the Lord Jesus. Hope. What does it look like? There are casual ways that we use this word hope. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope the next time I go to the Riverboat Casino, I'll be lucky enough to win. I hope the special birthday cake I'm making will turn out. I hope Pastor Chris will let us sing my favorite song in church next Sunday. Oh, dear. If history is any indicator, that's not going to happen. (laughs) Having said that, this year hasn't been historically the way Cubs have played, so there's a chance. And uh, since my team is long eliminated, I think I might just cheer for you. In any case, we'd better get on with what we're here for, right? How different the word hope is really is in comparison to those ways in which I used it. The words penned by an old family friend, Norman J. Clayton, in 1945, really help us to begin to understand. It's been put to a tune and sung for years and years. Some of you may recognize the words and then think of the tune. My hope is in the Lord who gave his life for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. For me he died, for me he lives, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. Today what I want us to do is look into one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. The next passage here in the, in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as we are doing that, what I want us to do is I want us to see how God shows us that hope is possible. Will you follow along as I read verses 13 through 15? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Would you join me in prayer before we dig into the text? God, our Father, this morning, we do need hope. For some of us who are in this room, we've been called upon to grieve. For some of us in this room, we've been discouraged about some of the things that life has brought into our way. For some of us in this room, we have felt as if what God has promised in his word can't be true because things seem to have just gone on and gotten so much worse. Lord, would you help us to look into your word to discover what you genuinely say and find the hope that you intend for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Here Paul is writing back to the Thessalonian church along with the other members of his church planting team. And in doing so, he is trying to remind them that Jesus is coming again. They're maybe not so much struggling with the fact that Jesus is coming again. They may be wishing that it wouldn't be soon. But their reason for this is because they have loved ones who have died. And because of the belief of the pagan people or the heathen people that are in Thessalonica, they have lost hope in the reality that there's anything more for a person after he or she has died than simply to be placed in the grave and everything's over. Paul and his team recognized that this would be a very discouraging way to try to live life. My loved one isn't going to make it. But I love my loved one. Does God not love my loved one? Does he not care? So Paul talks about hope in this passage of Scripture in a way that we trust is going to cause us to think about hope as well. The first thing that I want you to notice in verses 13 through 15 is that hope informs us about the future. What's going to happen in the future? Can we have any confidence about it? Or must we wring our hands as we wait for each new thing to happen around us and say, oh my goodness, what's it going to get like? Because it seems as if everything that happens gets worse and worse. But Paul didn't want them to be uninformed about believers who had died. He tells them that grief is real, but grief for the dead believers should be different than the grief for unbelievers, according to verse 13. We manage our grief partly by having good information. And what he says in the text is this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Sometimes people will say to me, I'm really nervous. I've got to go to Canada, and I'm really nervous about what's going to happen. I'm concerned because going across the border, that that seems like that might be a daunting thing. And I say to them, if you have the right information, you don't need to worry about how you're supposed to act, about what you're supposed to do, about the things that you're supposed to have along with you, so that when the... uh, immigration officer asks you who you are, where you're from, what you're doing, why it is that you're going to Canada. You can ask all of those questions, and because you have not been ignorant in coming to the border, you are able to get in. Too many Christians today are uninformed about what's going to happen in the future. Now, Paul doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen in this passage, but he tells us enough important things that it will help us to have a good foundation, a place where we can put our feet, where we can have a confidence about what's going to happen. And the first thing that he says to us is, we don't need to be concerned about, we don't need to be worried for those who have already died who are in Jesus because they have fallen asleep. I remember a number of years ago, there was somebody who was giving a a special speech on death. And they were trying to help people to understand what death is. They failed to give the correct definition. 
They told a lot of interesting and good things, but they failed to give the correct definition. Do you know what the definition of death is? A separation. Now, that can take place on a number of different levels. When I die physically, I will be separated from my family. When some of my family members died, they were separated from me. But what happens in that separation is very important. And in Thessalonica, here was the challenge that they faced. In their world, in their pagan world, when somebody died, that was the end of existence. Their body went into the ground. They were described as being asleep, but in being asleep, they were never to wake up again. They had gone out of existence. Now, there's a lot of hope in that statement, isn't there? Not. And in actual fact, Paul is trying to help these Thessalonian believers come to a Christian view of what happens when the spirit and the, and the body are separated, when a believer is separated from those that he has lived with in humanity and is taken into the presence of God. And Paul says that they have fallen asleep. Our problem is that even in so-called Christian circles, there are people who come along to give us definitions that are not rooted in what the Bible has to say. Here's, here's the common one that comes out of the cults that claim to be Christian to describe what happens when we die. They say, well, it's soul sleep. Soul sleep means that when I die, I go into suspended animation, whatever that means, and that what happens is, for that period of time, until Jesus comes again, I go out of conscious existence. Now, two things. One, there's a lot of hope in that, not. And the second thing is, the Bible is quite clear in describing something different. For instance, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, the New King James Version, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, here it is, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when, we, when a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ dies, however they die, they are absent from their bodies, but they are present with the Lord. Paul also says in first, or sorry, in the first chapter of Philippians, the twenty-third verse, he's describing kind of his attitude toward: Should I die or should I continue to live? If the choice is mine, which would I rather do? And this is what he says: I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. To die is to be with Christ which is far better. Is hope beginning to burst within our souls as we are reminded of that which the Bible teaches, that death is not the end, it's not even the beginning. It's just one little part in the total picture of what God has provided, and that is filled with hope. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 10, over probably one page in your Bible, we read this. Speaking of Jesus, who died for us, 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, the words that we've just been uh, introduced to here a little bit more, we might live with him. The confidence that I have this morning is I live with him as my savior in this world. One day when I die or when Jesus returns, I am going to be taken into his presence to live with him for eternity. That's hope on both sides. That's something to encourage us. And this morning, I want us to understand that and take hope in it. Now, look again, if you will, please. And you'll see in the text that it says, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. He says, those who don't have hope, they have no expectation of what I'm talking about. But he says, for those of us who are believers, those of us who maybe in this last month have lost somebody very near and dear to us, those of us through circumstances that have allowed the years to pass have lost somebody who is close to us. He says, don't grieve like the pagans. He doesn't say don't grieve. Grief is real. You know, sometimes we say, oh, but your loved one passed away three weeks ago. Why are you still grieving? Come on, get over it. Please understand that is incredibly the most insensitive thing that we could ever say to somebody. Let's not do that. But he says, don't grieve life like others. Don't grieve as if there's never going to be a moment when it changes. As a pastor, I have had to spend time with hundreds. I I guess I could say now, after getting close to a half a century of preaching, that I have had to spend time with thousands of people who have lost a loved one. And yes, they grieve. But there are some, after years, they have not moved any farther along in their grief than they were on day one. It's as raw to them as before. And Paul says, I don't want you to be like that. He says, I want you to be able to find hope. I want you to be able to find healing. I hope you want you to be able to find redirection. And so he shows us how that is going to happen. Look, if you will, please, at verse 14. And he tells us that the hope that is ours and the grief that is ours is to be found in the fact of the resurrection. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The French skeptic many, many years ago, his name's Renane, said, You Christians live on the fragrance of an empty tomb. He meant to be critical of us. But the reality is, it's the truth. The thing that encourages us is the fact that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. I sometimes will say, I'm going to stick with the Bible. I'll let science catch up later. (laughs) Let me give you something about this passage that's very important. This is not a smoke and mirrors passage. Paul isn't trying to dupe us into something. 
There are those who claim to follow science, who give us explanations that relate to how they understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then consequently the resurrection of the dead. As it relates to Jesus, there are many different theories, five that I'll identify for you today. The first so-called scientific idea of the resurrection of Jesus is called the swoon theory. S-W-O-O-N, the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just appeared to die and fainted. And so here's how the explanation goes. You've seen the passion of the Christ, and you understand the descriptions that are given in the Bible, and you realize that Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life. Any other common person probably would have died early on in the process just from the whipping that was given to him. Then he was forced to stand. He was forced to begin to carry his cross. You see how terribly, terribly uh, torn apart he was inasmuch as as he walked along, he stumbled and fell. And Simon of Cyrene was required to carry his cross for him. He got to the mountain called Golgotha, the hill called Golgotha, or what so many times is called Mount Calvary. And he was placed upon the rock. He was raised up there and placed upon the cross and raised up before all of the people and left there to hang and to die. In the custom of the Romans... They would come along at sundown to discover whether or not the individual was close to death or still quite far from death. Either way, if they were still living, they would break the bones of the knees, of the legs, so as to make it impossible for the person to lift themselves up and catch their breath so that it would speed the death. And when they came to Jesus, the soldiers reported to Pilate that he was already dead. Here they were professionals who had done this hundreds of times. Jesus was not the first one to be crucified. The records tell us of hundreds of people in that part of the world who had died at that time. So they take him down from the cross. They take him to this tomb, garden tomb. They place him in it. They place a stone over it. And so-called science says uh, the, the comfort of the coolness of the tomb caused him to awaken. How much intelligence does it take to believe that? And then on top of that, beaten within an inch of his life, he gets up and he rolls away the stone and walks away from the grave. Rather a folly-filled theory. Second theory, the hallucination theory. I really like this one. When Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection... They don't dispute the resurrection because they're going to dispute something else which will disqualify the resurrection. The disciples hallucinated and just thought they saw Jesus. So read 1 Corinthians 15, the first part. And it talks about the fact that Jesus appears to over 500 of them at one time, in one place, alive. 500 people hallucinate all at once. Boy, I'd like to know what kind of mushroom supper they were having. Again, the folly of so-called science finds itself... I have an expression. They accuse me that it's a Canadian expression. I'm not sure. 
these scientists are way out in the willy wags in the pucker brush. Their theory doesn't hold up. Here's another one for you. The impersonation theory. When Jesus appeared to them, it really wasn't Jesus. It was just somebody impersonating Jesus. He had fixed himself all up to look like Jesus. The theft theory. This is the one that is recorded for us in the Bible. Uh, that the disciples or someone had stolen the body away. That he was really still dead. And then I really like this one. The unknown tomb theory. The disciples really didn't know where the tomb of Jesus was located. If you read the historic record, the historic record, the historic record, both in the Bible and from the pen of Josephus, you will discover that the place that was called Golgotha is next to a garden where there was a tomb where Jesus was buried. They'd have had to have been... And excuse me, since we have a sister who fits this description, they'd have had to have been blind to miss where he got buried. The truth of the matter is, Paul says to them, you want to have hope as it relates to your loved ones who've died? You want to have hope as it relates to you, to me, as we are going to face our future and ultimately to face what is going to take place? Then root your belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's alive. And as a result of that, then we can take his promises. Look at verse 15. God has given his promise about both death and living, dead and living believers in this section, where he says to them, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is coming again. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus could come soon? Perhaps today. If not today, then possibly tomorrow. Regardless of when it is that he comes, we are to be ready. We are to take confidence in the things that are said to us in the word of God about his coming. Now, we're not to do like the, uh, like the preacher in Ohio did on his radio broadcast several years ago, telling us that Jesus is going to come sometime in September. Well, there have been several Septembers that have passed and he still hasn't come. Or like so many others who are trying to set a time. The thing I remind you of is the Bible tells us very clearly that God and God alone knows the time. He has revealed it to no man, the text says. He hasn't even revealed it to his own son. One day, he'll say, today's the day, and Jesus will come. But what happens next is very important for us to understand. Uh, The Greek word that is used here for this coming is called the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. You see, Jesus came a first time. Do you remember? He came as a baby to be born in Bethlehem. He lived roughly 33 years. And he died. He was buried. He rose again. He went back to heaven. 
And he promised that he's coming again. This is what we call the blessed hope. This is something that should cause us to be filled with the excitement of the reality that Jesus has given us a wonderful promise about the future. Paul has already identified this for us. Flip back to chapter 1 and verse 10. He says to them to wait for his Son from heaven. Look at chapter 2 and verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? He says, we've won you, and Jesus is coming, and we'll present you to him at that time. Chapter 3 and verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Keep track of that. And then here in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, uh, he's dealing with this whole fact that he's coming. And then finally in chapter 5 and verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming, at the parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ. My favorite text on the second coming of Jesus Christ is found in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. The NIV says it this way, Men of Galilee, the angels say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. How did he leave? Personally, visibly, bodily, being caught up into the clouds and then into heaven. So how is he going to come according to this verse? Back from heaven, in the clouds, to the earth, personally and visibly. What I like about that is that gives us some definition as to what is going to happen. And in a world where there is so much chaotic discussion that goes on about what the second coming of Jesus is going to look like, it is important for us to understand <clears throat> excuse me, what that looks like. A little bit more about that in a moment. When he comes, we are told in the text that those of us who are alive at that moment in time will not precede them, will not be caught up before those who have fallen asleep. Oh, here's a difference between how they had grown up and what they were to learn. He says, those of us who are alive, we're convinced when Jesus comes, we're going to be caught up to be with him. But those who died before us, who are followers of Jesus Christ, they are going to come out of the graves first. Now, I've sometimes heard people say, Boy, this is going to be quite a show. Man, I'm looking forward to that. I got it all planned out. I'm going to have a picnic all laid out for this. And when it's starting to take place, I'm going to sit me down, and I'm going to watch all those people come out of the grave. And then it will be my turn. The folly of human thinking... The reality is that if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
Okay, everybody ready? I want you to participate with me now. Will you blink your eyes open and closed a few times? Just go ahead. Blink them open and closed a few times. Is there anybody here who didn't do it? Put your hand up. That's not how fast this is going to take place. That's slow. Faster than I can click my finger, this is all going to take place. You know, in the book of the Revelation, it talks about the fact that when we are caught up to be with the Lord, when we are with the Lord, and back in the Old Testament it is reinforced in Daniel and several other places, what it, to, what it tells us is that those who are left behind, that is, those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, are going to take a look at all of this and say, what the, what's this all about? And then we discover that the one who's identified as the Antichrist is going to explain to them how this all happened, and they're going to believe a lie. In fact, I suspect, though you don't have to go to the bank with this one, that they're going to become very angry at Christians. How dare they disappear? See, they weren't real. They were phonies. But those who have died, your loved ones who have died, who are followers of Jesus Christ, they're coming out of that grave. You say, what happens if they weren't buried in the ground? What happens if they were buried in the sea? You say, what happens if somehow they died in an explosion and their body was spread all over? You say, what happens if they were cremated? The God who is God, the God who created mankind out of dust, the God who created the first woman out of the rib, out of the side of a man, has no problem with the things that we face in that regard from our perspective. Do you know why? Because the reality is that my body's not the most significant thing. It's who I really am that is already with Jesus. But he says he's going to bring us out, and 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that this old corruptible body is going to put on incorruption. We are going to receive a new body, an eternal body, that is going to be perfectly fitted. Thirty-two, thirty-three pants for me in eternity. Now you laugh, but the reality is when God does what God does, he does it perfectly in the way that it ought to be. So then there's something else that happens to us. Excuse me. How will Jesus come again? Verses 16 and 17. Let's read them. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be, uh, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Two things to describe for us how Jesus will come. Personally, per- first, personally, we told you that. The Lord himself. The word that is translated there actually translates literally as 
the Lord himself and not another. Now, the preterists tell us something different than that. Some others tell us something else. For instance, some people believe that Jesus returned, his second coming, his parousia, was on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt believers. Well, I don't want to diminish what happened on the day of Pentecost. I also don't want to diminish the second coming of Jesus Christ. Each has its separate purpose. And then the preterists say to us, well, you know, the second coming of Jesus took place in about AD 70 when the city of Jerusalem was overthrown. And they go into all kinds of songs and dances, pretty tunes, interesting words. And my question of them is, where do we see Jesus personally and visibly? Oh, that didn't happen. Then your view is filled with big holes. Your ship's going to the bottom. Well, you know, we've got to figure out whether it's premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. <laughs> Somebody said it, we, we really should all be panmillennialists. Do you know what a panmillennialist is? It'll pan out in the end. <laughs> Now, I know what your statement of faith says here at the church. So you're saying, which are you? Are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? Are you amillennial? Folks, Jesus is coming back personally, visibly, bodily to the earth. Therefore, the postmillennial and the amillennial view have troubles. I think I told you I'm premillennial. And I'm not waffling on that. There are good people who hold to the other views. But the reality is Jesus is coming again. And if my system does not believe that in some way or another, then the reality is I'm not going to have any hope. Oh, but that's not the big question you see, Don. The big question is, are you pre-trip? Are you mid-trip? Are you post-trip? You forgot a few. Pre-wrath rapture is another one. Oh, I don't know anything about that one. The reality is, we are told that Jesus is coming again. And we'd better study the scriptures. And what I ought not to do is I ought not to spend all my time nose-counting, which is what so many Christians do. Terry, you're going to get picked on here. Okay. Terry, are you pre? Are you mid? Are you post? Are you pre-wrath rapture? Which are you? Come on, come on. Pre-millennial, pre-rapture. Okay. That doesn't sound the same as what I believe. I can't fellowship with you. Actually, it does sound the same. (laughs) Just so that you know. Tom? How about you? Are you pre-trip? Are you mid-trip? Are you post-trip? Are you pre-wrath rapture? I am so pre-trip, I won't eat post-toasties. 
<laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> no post-toasties. And when you ride your horse, you don't tie it up to a hitching post. <laughs> there you go. Good deal. We're very close together. Stan, this is George Beverly Scarlet. No. Coors, sorry. Got to get it right. He's going to sing a solo at the end for us. Would you like that? Are you pre? Are you mid? Are you post? Are you pre-wrath rapture? Pre. Millennial or pre-trip? Pre-millennial. Okay, good deal. Now, we could go up and down the aisle, and after we're all done, we could have this church all factioned up, because I happen to know that in spite of the fact that this church takes a pre-trib, pre-millennial position in terms of the coming of Jesus Christ, there are good people in this church who do not actually believe that Jesus is coming before the tribulation. <gasps> Convene the deacons quickly. The thing that I want you to understand is the hope is not in where we put the pre's in that last. The hope is in the fact that Jesus is coming again. So you look at the very last verse, and I won't even make much in the way of comment about it. We read there, therefore, as a result of all of this, encourage one another with these words. You've recently lost someone. Be encouraged, friend. If they're a follower of Jesus Christ, they are currently in the presence of the Lord, enjoying all that he is about and all that he has provided. They would sooner we come to where they are than that they come back to where we are. And I don't say that glibly. I say that because... That's what this whole thing's all about. We one day are going to be with Jesus. Now, you may be here and you have not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior. Can I say to you that you need to come to know Jesus? If the Spirit of God is dealing with your heart, before you leave this auditorium this morning, you need to come and allow us to point you to the Lord Jesus. I urge you to do that. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've been struggling, these thoughts have just been kind of, they've been collapsing in your mind. They've been boomeranging off the drums of your ears as it's just been upon you. Maybe what you need to do is come and allow us to pray for you. You know, as we get older, these kind of thoughts become even more real to us than before. And we need to have the hope that God has given us. One gentleman came to me and says, you know what you just talked about? That's what's been going on in my mind for a long time. Thank you for preaching on it. It has set my mind at ease. That's why Paul sent this to them. That's why I declare it to you, because it's a message of hope. Would you join me in prayer? God, our Father, as we conclude this service today,
we thank you that you love us enough to make certain that incidences that happened several thousand years ago are recorded in the Bible so that we can find answers to questions that stumble us, that concern us, that cause us to be fearful. Lord, for every person who's fearful in this audience today, may they find hope in what we have just studied. And for the one who does not know Jesus as Savior, that they will come to know you today before they leave here. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Last week after I preached that somewhat more difficult sermon, I said to you, we tell you these things because we love you. The wonderful thing is that this weekend we come to a message that is so filled with hope that no one can go out of here just quaking and saying, oh, that was such a hard sermon. And so I say to you again, we tell you these things because we love you. That's why God has us tell them to you. And so I can say to you, go, stand firm. And you know, over here, folks, these folks over here, they were glad that I came to sit down here and didn't walk up and down the aisle asking the questions that I asked over there. Switch sides next week because I'm liable to come down this one. God bless you. If you need to talk with me, please come and speak with me.